What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. During this month, August 2020, the Burn It All Down crew is taking some time off to rest and retool the show. In place of our regular weekly Tuesday episodes, we are bringing you episodes from podcasts hosted by guests of Burn It All Down. We hope you enjoy, and we'll be back soon. And as always, burn on, not out. Hi everyone, Lindsay Gibbs here. I am very excited to be joined by Courtney Nguyen. Uh, This week's guest episode is No Challenge Remaining, which is hosted by Courtney and Ben Rothenberg. Courtney, can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us how long have you been doing NCR and what's the podcast about? Yeah, no, thank you for having me, Lindsay. And it's it's great to see you, obviously. I mean, just your face as of right now. But so yes, Ben and I have co-hosted a podcast called No Challenges Remaining probably for, gosh, I think since 2012, I want to say 2012, 2013. Um, and basically, it's a tennis podcast. Both of us at the time were freelance tennis journalists. Ben still is. I work for the WTA, actually, as, as, a, as a writer. And we just obviously are obsessed with tennis. We talk about tennis all the time. We talk about it in a certain way that is pretty irreverent and doesn't take itself too seriously. And also trying our best to kind of keep the, the sport honest with itself and not kind of buy into too many of the, the tropes that, uh, that kind of get sold in this sport um, and try to be, look at it critically. So that was kind of the origins of things. And we would have these conversations all the time, like at bars and in the car, things like that. And there just came one day where it just dawned on us as it dawns on anybody who's ever started a podcast. Hey, why don't we record this? People might want to hear it, you know? I do. I do. That sounds familiar. I love it. Been a listener since 2012. Uh, so what is this particular episode about that we're going to hear today? During the the shutdown, we had an opportunity to talk to one of the coaches on the WTA tour, a former player. Her name is Sandra Zinevska, and she is awesome. She's a former Polish player. Well, she's still Polish, but a former player. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so she's a Polish player, recently retired and still relatively young. She unfortunately kind of walked away from the game more due to uh, injuries and things like that. But um, last year, she had kind of a breakout coaching season with a player named Petra Martic from Croatia, who made the semifinals of the French Open, had a career season. And one of the reasons why we love talking to Sandra is she's incredibly charismatic, very knowledgeable, and has a really, really interesting coaching philosophy, but also because female coaches on the WTA tour are not the norm. The vast majority of coaches, not just on the WTA, but in the sport generally, from the grassroots level all the way through the pro level, are male. Is one of the few uh, women who coaches on the pro tour, coaching a top player as well, Petra Martic, in the top 20 now, although they don't, she doesn't coach her anymore. She now coaches Alizé Cornet of France, um, but another top player. I know it's fun. It's a fun pairing. That is um, a fun so, pairing. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was really fun to sit and talk to her about what she's been up to in the shutdown. And also, again, just coaching philosophy, 
and talking about how tennis players have handled at that point in time, the shutdown, the idea of individual responsibility within tennis, which is a sport that is obviously very individualistic. That's exciting. And, you know, we want to get everyone right into the episode, but quickly, I know you all have a Patreon now. So how can people find you and support NCR? Yes. Yeah. We, we launched a Patreon a couple years ago and have been completely humbled by uh, the support. And um, especially right now during the pandemic, I mean, like I said, like I have a full-time job with the WTA. So financially the pandemic hasn't infected me, but obviously Ben is a freelancer and it has impacted him. So every little bit has counted and we, and he's done a great job of coming up with exclusive content for Patreon users. But yeah, you can find us at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. If you can support us, you know, and, we'll try and give you some wacky exclusive content to reward you. Like we play code names, the, 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 the board game with, with tennis players and with other journalists. And it's, very it's been fun. fun. It's been it's fun. Very fun. <laughs> uh, and then on Twitter, it's what NCR underscore tennis. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. We're on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also follow Ben at Ben Rothenberg and you can follow myself at 40 deuce twits. Um, and as tennis is about to kind of, be taking over the airwaves in a lot of ways for the next three weeks with the the three-week bubble in New York culminating with the U.S. Open. If you're interested in tennis and Serena's march towards 24 and everybody's hot takes about all of that and who's playing and who's not, then, you know, we'll definitely keep you in the loop on all all those fronts. I think it's safe to say that the Burn It All Down crew is interested in Serena Williams. That's uh, one thing that I think I can, I don't like to speak for everyone, but uh, I feel pretty safe with that. Well, thanks so much, Courtney and Flamethrowers. Enjoy this guest episode. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Benjamin. And we are also joined by another friend of ours from the tour, the coach Sandra Zanevska, who is here joining us via Skype from Poland. And I heard, Sandra, you just played tennis? Is that that's still a thing people do? Yes, apparently <laughs> it is, at least here. <laughs> Hello. Just start with the most recent stuff first, and we'll get more into your your story and how we know you from tour and everything. But what has it been? What you've started playing tennis again? That's that's very exciting. We're recording this on May twelfth, and people are playing tennis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Poland has been on lockdown for quite a while. When I came back from states, I had to stay in quarantine for two weeks. That's actually still mandatory for everyone that's coming back uh, from abroad. So. After the two week um, two weeks of being locked up in the house, I went out, and it was still pretty much illegal to go anywhere except for like emergency and groceries. But since fourth of May, so a week now and a bit, uh, yeah, we are able to play tennis outside only. So we have to count on good weather, which it has been okay so far. But for example, last night it snowed, and I mean it's May twelfth, oh, so wow. again, wow, <laughs> like. You never know what what's going to happen this year, I feel like. Uh, but yeah, we are allowed to play and it feels good. It feels good to be back on court. Does it feel does it feel foreign? I mean, like, because our lives have been so disrupted by this. I'm just curious for, for whenever I have to get back to doing whatever it is I do in the world, if I'll, like, remember how to do it. But did everything, did it feel like you'd been away longer than actually the amount of time was? Because I'm guessing you've had times in your life where you've not played tennis for a month or six weeks or something. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, also, like, I don't play tennis so often now either. It's just that 
it's more like I'm on the court every day coaching, but it's not so much that I'm playing tennis for myself. So it's a nice change. Of course, I'm uh, everything's hurting. Uh, yesterday I played for the first time, and uh, it's just, I mean my cooldown was longer than the practice actually. So <laughs> <laughs> I need the stretching, I need the rolling, but but it's fun, you know. Today I played again, and it feels different, but it doesn't really feel foreign. I mean, it's been a long break, but I've been busy as well, doing a lot of things at home. So it's okay. It doesn't feel that bad, at least not yet. Sandra, I'm I'm curious. You said, you know, two-week quarantine uh, being mandatory, staying inside. You've often, when we've talked, said like how kind of hyperactive you are and there's a lot of energy to burn off. So what was that like, kind of not being able to, to, to go outside, to be active? Um, and did you kind of come out of it okay like mentally and physically or or was it was it a struggle well you know the first couple of days i was struggling with a jet lag and it was actually i think one of the worst jet lags i had in my life like one day (laughs) i I went to bed at 2 a.m and i woke up at 3 p.m i had no idea what's going on where am i what time zone i'm in nothing and um obviously it was tricky because during the quarantine in poland uh, the police can check up on you every single day and if Hmm. you cannot sort of show yourself in the window or at the door, well, you've got a big problem, you can be fine. So, you know, I woke up and I had like 800 missed calls from like my family and, and, and friends. And, you know, oh, no. and I was like, oh my God, I just hope that there's like no unknown numbers, you know, that the police really hasn't come here and, and checked on me, which the case was, they didn't. So, so I was lucky enough, but everybody was worried. Like, how can you sleep until 3 p.m.? I'm like, I, I don't know. It never happened to me before in my life. Like, you know, um, so the first couple of days were was fighting the jet lag. And then later on, I'm lucky I have a garden. So I was working out in the garden. Courtney, you can check out my Instagram. And there you will see <laughs> one of the workouts that I'm, I'm, I'm using like water bottles and whatever I found at home to, to do that. Uh, obviously, I couldn't even get out to get groceries. So I had my friends doing that. So very grateful to have people around me that can help me with with doing that and the rest of the time I mean I was really active reading a lot and working on some new projects for myself uh everything was obviously still so new but I often found that I didn't even have enough time during the day to do all that I wanted to do so I was still hyperactive just not physically as much <laughs> good it to hear pretty okay good to hear yeah. you're still you yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so to get just a little background for, for listeners who have who don't know your story as well um, and on what has made you you, you were a player on tour. And I guess, can you just sort of talk about your your playing career first and then how you decided to uh, to stop playing? Yeah, well, I, I've been playing for quite a bit. Uh, I started when I was 10 years old. It was pretty accidental, actually. I didn't want to, I mean, I was very active. And uh, I wanted to skateboard because my brother did skateboarding and I was begging my mom to get me one. And she was like, no, I really don't want you to do that. It's not girly. You know, you should do something else, oh. something that girls do. And and I was like, well, I just want to skateboard. And finally, I, I convinced her. We went to a store to buy the skateboard. And there she met a friend that she didn't see for like years and years. And, you know, they've been catching up. And, and she asked her like, well... I mean, my mom asked a friend, like, what is your son doing? And she said, my son's playing tennis. And I was like, oh, there you go. I'll take you to the tennis court. And I was like, oh, God, you know, again, some (laughs) stupid idea. But then we went to the tennis court and it turned out that I actually liked it quite a lot. And um, I was progressing quite fast. And, 
yeah, it it just sort of went on from there. But I never really planned on playing professional. It it was so natural when I was still I was 16 years old. I think playing French Open uh, juniors. My mom came there with me, and um, I beat the number one seed in the second round over there. And I think this was the first moment in my life that I actually realized, like, hey, I think I really want to do this for a living. You know, I think I really want to go for it. So I think it was pretty late. Um, my mom was always telling me, like, you know, if you if you don't enjoy it anymore, you can stop any day. You know, you you just I just want you to be happy. And so I really had no pressure. It was pretty easy going from from my parents' side. Um, and then, yeah, I started playing professional. The first couple of years on tour were quite up and down for me. But I was also traveling myself mostly without a coach. So I think that made it a bit tougher on me. Then finally, when I was um, 20, I I got into qualifying of the Grand Slam of Grand Slams. Um, I qualified. The only Grand Slam main draw that I played was Wimbledon in 2012, and also that year I started getting injured quite some, playing more matches, winning more, and also getting injured. And from then on, my career was quite up and down, uh, pretty much with injury. So, you know, I was playing, then stopping, then playing again, and stopping. It was quite frustrating. Uh, a lot of different things, but everything around the low back area. And then at one point, um, Petra was coming back. Martic, my previous player, the player I worked with before, she was coming back to play. I knew her from the tour before. Um, and she asked me if I wanted to do a couple of weeks with her. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, I mean, I was quite frustrated with the way things were going with my body, but I didn't really know what else I wanted to be doing even though I tried a couple of other things, but that's a different story. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, it somehow it went that way from there, you know, from a couple of weeks, it became full-time and well, here, here I am now on the tour in a completely different role. Yeah. So you, oh, the player you beat oh, in the second round of French Open was Laura Robson. It was the top seed, is that right? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, another, another past NCR guest, actually, Laura Robson. So, so we've spoken before about your journey getting into being a coach on tour but there's um still a lot of like you didn't think this was possible when you stopped because you you were telling me when we talked last year with the french open so almost exactly a year ago when you were saying that um you just didn't see any female coaches or many female coaches on tour so when you stopped playing you didn't think it was a possibility really to become a a full-time coach even on the wta tour I'm just curious if you can sort of explain to people your your thinking on that or your assumption of that, and then and then how you were able to sort of change your mind and change perceptions of what's possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I you know I didn't even honestly I didn't even want to be a coach. Um, it always seemed to me like a really lonely job, and I was like, well, you know, I can do anything in life, but the last thing I'm going to do is to is I'm going to be a tennis coach. So ironically enough, this is what I am now. But I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, the reason I didn't want to be a coach was, yeah, like I said, it you know seemed to me like first of all, it's such a lonely job. You are away so often. Uh, you can lose your job at any time, which is also not great if you're thinking like long-term security, you know, in your life. Uh, and I already had enough of that because as a player, it's the same. You know, you get injured, you stop earning money, um, back to square one. And then on top of that, I was a female. Uh, I mean, I am a female. Uh, and yeah, you just don't see female coaches almost at all. So I figured like, okay, you know, this is just, yeah, there's just no way it's going to happen. And then somehow it, uh, it actually worked out and here I am now, I wouldn't change this for anything. And I think that, um, 
the reason we I mean, there are probably a couple of reasons why we don't have that many female coaches on the tour. And I think one of them is simply the fact that, you know, females, they they prefer to, I guess, stay at home, you know, at one point when they have kids. They, they don't want to travel as much anymore. I mean, it's still like sort of a stereotype that the woman stays at home and the man is the one that works. Um, and I think it it definitely has to have something to do with that. But second of all, I think that we just don't have enough female leaders uh, in the world in general, you know? And then when you think, when you think of a coach of a tennis coach, you think of men, you don't really think of a woman. Um, and then players see it that way as well. You know, they think, okay, they think of a coach, they think that, that men have authority and women don't have as much of it. And I think that's a bit misleading. Um, and I don't think that, you know, we should look at it gender wise and I hope that's going to change. I hope that uh, one day, players will see that actually uh, female coaches can also give them value. But at the end of the day, you know, again, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to differentiate because to me, a coach is a coach. It doesn't matter whether a coach is a female or it's a male. Um, the only thing I would want as a player is to see if the coach can give me value. Yeah. That's that, it. Did, did you ever have a female coach during your own playing days? Yes, I did too. Hmm. So for you, it wasn't something, it was already a relatively familiar concept for you, I guess, or something that you, yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, you know, for me, it didn't really matter. Like, um, actually, yeah, it was easier for me to communicate with women. Uh, so with female coaches, it was a little bit easier, but then again, I had them at the end of my career. So I was also a bit older. I don't think I can compare it to when I was a teenager, you know, because then again, uh, I was a different person. I was a bit younger. I was treating coaches more as a, yeah, you know, in a different way. Like when, when you're already an older player, it's more of a partnership. When you're younger, the, the coach is the one that tells you more what to do all the time. Later on, you try to figure things out together. So it's a bit different. I don't think I can really compare that. Uh, but it it didn't really matter to me ever whether it was a it was a male or a female. The only thing that was important for me, like I said, is you know, what, what they can teach me, what I can get from them. What surprised you the most about, um, because you said that you were obviously, you know, hesitant to go into coaching initially um, and thought that it might be lonely and, and things like that. So, you know, given how much you do enjoy it, uh, what, what surprised you the most once you got into it that maybe, you know, you didn't, you didn't expect that you would like certain aspects of the job as much as you do? <laughs> what surprised me and kind of scared me also is how I am used to traveling and then I was like <laughs> oh my god am I ever going to like get rid of that in my life you know am I ever going to be able to come back to one place and actually be there for like more than a week or two or three here comes corona exactly <laughs> you can find out now but you know what actually right now I don't mind but again it's like I'm doing a lot of different things so maybe that's why uh, but then again, right now we are sitting at home and, you know, we're just waiting for, for the news. Like, okay, when, when are we going to be able to get back there? So, uh, and I think if they're going to tell us like, Hey, it's going to be in January, it's we're we're probably all going to be very, very upset and sad and frustrated. But right now it's like, okay, July, you know, soon it's probably going to be okay. August. And, and I guess if they keep on moving it this way, then it just feels different, you know what I mean? Like the hope is is different the way you look at it. Um, you don't want so but, you don't want them to dash your hope, because some players are like, nah. let's just call it. Other, you know, other people are like, no, 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 like let's keep trying. Like everybody kind of has a different perspective on it. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not really thinking about that much actually at all, you know. Um I I'm like, okay, you know, people are taking care of that. If smart people are taking care of that, let's leave it up to them and tell us when we are able to get back and that's it. And I I'm trying really not to speculate because every time I start thinking about it, I feel yeah, helpless, you know? And and it's like, yeah. okay, what's the point, you know? It it feels to me like a waste of time to to do that. So so I don't even go there anymore. It was like this in the beginning when the Indian Wells was cancelled and all that a couple of weeks after that. But right now it's just like I'm just waiting for the news and whatever the news is going to be, I'm going to adjust. But I think it's better for for people. I think it's better for people if if they move it gradually. Yeah. Yeah. You, that's that's my opinion. You you had mentioned uh, obviously Indian Wells, and I know you and I talked, and you uh, you had stuck around in the states for a while after Indian Wells was canceled and uh, spent some time in Chicago with your aunt, right? I think. Yes. Or, yes. Yeah. I also went for a little road trip. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> in California and Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Your solo Thelma and Louise trip uh, through the, yeah. uh, the California, the, <laughs> through the West. Um, but, uh, but your aunt is a, is a healthcare professional, right? A nurse or doctor? Yes. Yeah. A doctor, so I'm, yeah. I'm just kind of curious, like that experience of kind of staying with her for, you know, for however long that you were with her before you were able to get back to Poland, like, do you feel like that gave you, you know, a different, uh, different perspective on kind of what is happening right now globally? Uh, well, you know, my aunt is, is, is one person, but my parents are also doctors. So here I am back. I mean, I'm not staying with them, but obviously we're, we're close. We're talking every day and, um, yes and no. Um, you know, I think <laughs> it's a tough subject, you know, it's it's a really hard subject and, and one that I don't like to get into because I'm not, I'm not really, I don't want to say that I'm not interested because I am, of course, it's a very important issue for the world, but at the same time, I feel like I'm not competent enough to do anything with that. And to me, if I feel like I'm not competent enough to, to help that or do anything with that, then I'm looking for ways what I can do for myself and for the world so that in this time it can be better. So uh, I'm not, I'm not following the news. I, of course, at the start, when, when I came to Chicago and I was with my auntie, we talked a little bit about this whole situation, but it was maybe only one evening and that's it. And we didn't talk about it anymore. Here I am with my parents. Um, sometimes they call me and they tell me that there is some restriction going on and that I should watch out. Like, for example, we have now mandatory masks in Poland and my mom called me and she's like, Hey, you know, uh, please get a mask. It's mandatory now to wear it outside. And I didn't even know because I'm not watching the news at all. So I'm not following gotcha, what's yeah. going on that much. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's just, I, I'm very similar to be quite honest. Like, I think I was following it a lot early on. And it just got to the point where it it um, it was costing me probably mentally mm. more than it was benefiting me to to be as as engaged and informed. So it's for me, it's just like, what is my city doing? What is my county doing? What is my state doing? And that's it. Like, I don't have yeah. the mental uh, energy uh, at the moment to to really care about anyone else and that sounds so cruel but that's not that it's just that it, it doesn't it just doesn't matter it it right now it's just kind of trying to get through each day you know yeah but you know I don't I don't think it really is not caring about anyone else I think it's more that well what can we do anyways you know we we not we 
consume that information. It's coming to us all the time, but can we really do anything about it? Like on a collective level? No, not at all. And then I think the question is like, okay, do we want to be like, do we want to engage in this, engage in this constant exchange of information and every second new, new stuff coming, coming at us? Or do we want to just take the time and use it in a better way, in a way that, yeah, it's going to help us grow and, and in a way that we can contribute to the world through the things we know best. You know, for me, it's tennis. For me, it's uh, talking about it, thinking about it, thinking how I can be better for myself, for my player, uh, all that, you know. And yeah, that's. I think that's probably the best way to use that time. Sandra, can you just take, take us back to India Wells, what it was like the moment you heard that the tournament there was canceled and sort of the events that unfolded for you professionally after that? <laughs> the way I, I the way I heard the tournament was cancelled was Alize texting me, Can you believe they cancelled Indian Wells? <laughs> and me reading the WhatsApp and I'm like, You gotta be kidding me. This is probably some prank or something. It cannot be happening. And she's like, No, it's really happening. Come on, pick me up. We have to make a plan. And I was like, Wow, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Because obviously she found out from social media. And um so first I picked her up and I was like it's okay, don't panic. It, it must be some prank. It cannot be true. I mean, they, they would have let us know, right? Like in some different way than reading it on Twitter or Facebook. But obviously it, it's true. And um, yeah, the, the the first hours, the first days for me, I think I was in, in, in shock because I was in disbelief. I was like, nah, this, this cannot be happening. I mean, it's too big of an event for, for anything to happen. But then at the same time, a couple of weeks before that, I was saying that, yeah, probably they're going to cancel all the tournaments soon because it cannot just go on like this. So I don't even know what I was thinking at the very start, to be honest. It was, uh, I think it was quite a shock for me. And then the day after we had the WTA uh, meeting um, and before that we went on the court with Alize to just have a bit of fun. Um and yeah, it was quite tricky, you know, because we didn't know what to do. We didn't know whether we should stay, whether we should go back and then come back from Miami. Uh, at the meeting, they told us that Miami is planning to operate even without spectators. And, you know, they were like, it's most probably going to happen. And I was sitting at that meeting thinking like, no way, there's no way it's going to happen. If they cancel the Indian Wells, they're probably going to cancel Miami and everything after that. But then, you know, you're thinking one thing, you're hearing the other and at the same time, you have no idea. So, yeah, it was quite tricky. Um, I mean, Alize, she wanted to go back home. She was like, you know, if there's no tournament, I'm not sticking around. I was like, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, that's 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 up to you. You know, your decision. Um, we just got to see what's going to happen. But I, I was betting on Miami not happening as well. Uh, so she left. I stayed on my solo trip, which was awesome, by the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. You know, we, we've just been in touch with Alize and, uh, kind of taking it day by day because that's what was happening at the time. And, uh, at one point, I don't even remember when, uh, they canceled then Miami and then Charleston and then everything else after that, it just, you know, kept on rolling downhill. And yeah, we are in, in this suspense ever since really. I mean, for Alize, she's been stuck in, in at home for the last six weeks. I think she wasn't allowed to go out for more than one kilometer away. So no tennis. Um, obviously, today was the first day that, she, that they could go out and actually play. Uh, no, sorry, yesterday, but the weather was bad. So today she was first time on the court. And yeah, that's, that's what it is, you know, just waiting it out. Um, 
so what what were you telling in the early days of things were happening were you telling alizé to keep you know training like it's normal to to focus more on fitness to try to find court somewhere or just like just sort of hang up the racket and wait i mean what what is your what was your initial strategy or, or thought and on what to do when when things start stopping so suddenly well it obviously depends on you know when tennis is getting back but since we knew it wasn't getting getting back like any any soon and any soon i mean it's a month or two then my idea and my advice is always to leave the record i mean it makes no sense to hit every day it's okay if, if she hits like once or twice a week you know and uh yeah just keeps in shape just um do fitness i mean she told me that in five weeks she had only two days off i was like okay this is crazy <laughs> like wow. you are crazy uh, but obviously that's her discipline. And, um, this is also one of the reasons why she's, she's such a good player for such a long time that, you know, she's just able to do that herself at home without anyone telling her to do that, anyone pushing her. Um, and right now, again, you know, I, in, in my eyes, it's okay to hit just twice a week. I wouldn't even hit more two, three times a week because, you know, you, you want the player hungry when the tournaments are coming back. And then when we know when they are coming back and do, you know, again, um, a preparation of four or five weeks and that's it. And then they're ready to go. But I think if they keep on, you know, hitting and keep on practicing every single day without knowing when, when the tournaments are starting again, it's, it's just going to make them tired, you know, because at the end of the day, players also play to compete. So this competition, this thrill of competition is what gets them going as well. For you, what do you think is the biggest struggle right now for if you're a professional tennis player, male or female, you know, and, and you know, you, you're home and you don't know when the season is necessarily going to restart. You're hoping for, you know, June, July um, and everything. What, what's, what do you think is the toughest thing for tennis, pro tennis players to deal with right now? Mm, that's a good question. I think there could be a couple of things. Uh, one of them is definitely this decision what to do, whether to play, whether to practice or not to practice, to keep in shape or not keep in shape. And then I think for a lot of them, um, it could be also the fact that, you know, that's what they've been doing their whole lives for God knows how many years. All they've done this time of the year and most time of every year was traveling and playing tournaments and right. feeling that adrenaline, you know, that rush, all those emotions. And right now it's just so stagnant. And now the question becomes like, okay, now what? You know, is there anything else in life? And um, I mean, I'm guessing that this could be the case. I don't know. I think uh, it's probably when I was young it could have been a problem for me it was a problem for me when I was injured so you know it's a similar right, situation yeah. I couldn't really play uh, and I was just like okay you know now what like what am I gonna do and I think um, this time also forces us to answer some hard questions like that you know is there what else is there to life can I do anything else what if also what if tennis looks different after we come back right because tennis might look different it might not it's probably not going to just go back like, okay, you know, full stadiums, full of fans. You can be uh, hang around the players' lunch and everything like always. It's probably going to look uh, a lot different. And then, yeah, how are we going to deal with that? You know, how are we going to deal without spectators? How is it going to feel to play on those big stadiums without anyone sitting there but your coach? Uh, how is it going to feel without that interaction? 
uh, with players, you know, in the players' lounge and stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a lot of I think a lot of possibilities and and again, you know, how how well do we use the time? I think it's a perfect time to reflect on so many different things and um, yeah, I, I hope that a lot of people are using it well. You've written about that, Sandra, in the writing you've done, which you've posted online as well already, um, about sort of how identity can get wrapped up in being a tennis player. And I'm curious just if you've, if something, it's something you, I don't know if you've spoken to Alize about this or other people in the sport now about what, you know, being a tennis player is such an all consuming job. It's sort of, you're defining who you are in life. And even, even for this short, sort of short time, and we'll see how short it is. I mean, we don't know when exactly the sport's going to come back. But taking tennis away from a tennis player very suddenly, and especially, you know, if there's not a obvious tangible cause like getting injured or something like that, um, I would imagine it could be very tough, you know, sort of mentally or emotionally for, for a lot of people in the sport to suddenly have this thing that they put their entire life's effort into, you know, suddenly disappear this quickly. And you think it's going to come back, but still even just being lost without it temporarily, I think could be could be pretty tough for some people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that this is exactly, you know, those questions that we start asking ourselves, like, well, who am I if not a tennis player? And that's, um, I think that's a very individual question. And it's a hard one to to answer, actually, you know, because you've got to, you've got to do some digging, you have to see what else is there besides the player. And uh, obviously, for a lot of tennis players, they don't feel like there's a lot because tennis is pretty much all they know or most that they know right and um you know everybody's kind of story and journey is different so i cannot speak of course for everyone and i don't think that we should generalize this but um for me this this sort of process of getting out of this of getting out of this mentality that i'm a tennis player and this is all that i am it took a couple of years but i have to say that when i when i got out of it I felt so much lighter, you know, like such a huge load was taken off my back. And I feel like it didn't only help me as it, as it like that I was a tennis player and as a tennis player, because it can happen to any of us like doing anything else. You know, there are many other uh, pr- professions which are obviously consuming. If you have your own business, you know, if you're a doctor saving lives or well, plenty of them, you can get wrapped up in that as well. And then who are you when this is taken away from you? You know, uh, how do you perceive yourself? How do you perceive the world? What do you want to get out of your life? What is happiness to you? You know, so many questions that need answering. And then again, if we are forced to take the time off, they just pop up, I think. And they actually demand to be answered. Yeah, it's a a weird thing because for so long, um, you know, there's this trope, right, that people say, oh, you know, it, it, get you get yourself a job that's your passion, like make your passion your job, right? Like that's the goal, that's the ideal, that's what everybody wants, theoretically. And I feel like uh, people who do, or players, and not even just players, I mean, there's those of us who work around the players uh, who also travel a lot and things like that, like everybody who's part of the tennis road machine, um, if you are a person that has that philosophy of like, yes, like I do this because this is truly my life's passion. I think that those people are the ones that are probably going to be struggling the most right now because literally that thing that you do is currently undoable. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the people who maybe approach their careers as 
I, I mean, I love tennis. Like I'm passionate about it. I love competing, all these sorts of things. I love the travel, but this is not who I am. This is not my sole source of joy. Uh, this is not my sole source of identity. Um, it seems to me like I've been talking to a lot of the players and coaches during the stoppage, and it, it feels like the ones that have that mentality and approach towards tennis are doing so much better right now than the ones mm-hmm. who who really, this is their everything. And so it's like a weird kind of double-edged sword, you know, of having that philosophy with respect to 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 your job, I guess. Yeah, but but I also think that, you know, what is passion? Like, we should define what's passion. Because to me, uh, I'm extremely passionate about coaching. You know, I love it. It's, I mean, I miss being on the tour. I miss, I miss, you know, I miss Alize. I miss working with her, going on the court and going we on tournaments. Miss I miss all that. <laughs> For sure. I don't doubt it. I, I think, I think the day she quits, we'll always miss her. Like, 100%. I don't even want to, I don't want to even think what the day is going to look like, but it's going to be a sad, sad day. Okay. Let's, not, let's not think about it. It's going to be a party though. A good going away party for sure. Yeah. But, um, but you know, when it comes to passion, so yeah, like I live, I live coaching as well. You know, I love it. But to me, passion is something more. It's not literally the one thing that you do. To me, it's more um, the result that you can get from it. You know, for me, I'm passionate about people. I'm passionate about helping helping them become mm, the best right. that they can be. You know, I'm passionate about inspiring them. And then, um, of course, coaching, tennis coaching is one platform to do that. You know, I do that on the tennis court and, and I do it off the court as well. And right now I'm not able to do that. So my question to myself is, how do I keep my passion alive in times where the the primary source of that is impossible you know um so this is what i'm trying to do and i feel like um yeah that's what people should look towards you know when they think of their passion it's not the thing that they do it's the thing that they get from it and um and what i mean by that is if i'm passionate about something i'm not passionate about one thing doing one thing i'm passionate about something that's more global you know something that i can give contribute and what i can contribute is by yeah having passion to bring out the best in people one way i do that is through being on the court and coaching players because this is what i know pretty well but honestly right now since that's not possible i'm just looking for other ways to do that and um yeah i still feel fulfilled you know i still feel like i'm contributing to the world i'm contributing to myself as well because i'm learning a lot through those processes and and I think that this is what this is what life is about, you know. Life is about learning. Life is about growing. And again, players will be on the court and have a part of their life on the tennis court. You know, I don't know, 30, 35 years. I mean, until they are 30 or 35, they're going to play, and then another part of their life starts. And that doesn't mean that when they quit, that suddenly life is you know dull and and they're not fulfilled because the tennis is taken away from them. No. Um, I think that they can still find a new passion that brings the same sort of emotions that they are looking for in their life that they were getting through tennis. And this is what it's all about. You mentioned, Sandra, when you were talking at the beginning about being a little hesitant to get into coaching, one of the things was the lack of job security, that you can sort of lose your job at any point. And obviously, we see in tennis how often uh, players and coaches shuffle around the tour and how often changes are made. 
especially I think in women's tennis on that side of the tour right now in the last decade or so. And I'm curious for you now in this moment on tour where everyone has stopped working. And from what I'm he hearing from other coaches, I'm, I don't think I've talked to you about this directly, but uh, coaches are not currently getting paid now for the most part because players aren't getting paid. I've, you know, at least like 90% of several coaches are not getting paid now. It's a rough estimate, maybe more than that. And I'm wondering how you adjust to that uh, going forward. And I don't, I don't know if that's something that coaches need to somehow come together and figure out rules or the tours need to come together and figure out some way to protect coaches or something that makes uh, this job possibly a little bit more certain in, a, in an uncertain world. Yeah, that's a good question. And I know there, there have been some questions raised by coaches like that. I think it's a very important issue. Um, but at the, at the moment, you know, I just don't see how that could happen. Uh, coaches being independent contractors, a little bit different than players, actually. Um, you know, there have been questions being raised by about um, health insurance and job security. But I feel like, and, and these are important questions, you know, they have to be asked. And I think that it's probably not going to happen in in my coaching career, but I hope that for the coaches after, in in years time, you know, in 10, 20 years time, they are going to have better kind of outlook and, and they are, their jobs are going to be able to be more secure. But it's a really broad issue that to me, again, you know, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I have to say that I don't even feel um equipped to answer that question because i don't know in what ways it, it can go you know i don't know enough about that and yeah i i'm very happy to contribute to whatever discussions we have with the coaches but i can only say like very little about my point of view because i've been on the tour for very very short time you know and i really i don't even know how it can work legally and if we can even create a union how does it all those things to me they are, it's science fiction, honestly. Hmm. I, I guess I'm curious, when you come into the tour, uh, maybe especially as one of the youngest coaches on tour, because that's not, we haven't mentioned that. We talked about you being uh, a woman, which is rare, but you're also uh, in your 20s still, which is something that's very rare for coaches on tour. Also, uh, especially for, you know, main coaches that are hitting partners in their 20s sometimes on tour, but being a main head coach for a top player like you are is pretty rare in your 20s. And I'm wondering just sort of what kind of, to that point, what kind of like community you found in the coaches, Fenny? I mean, are you, you know, I guess you're not in the same locker room as the male coaches and so maybe you're away from most of them, but do you find that there's sort of a companionship among the, the coaches or is everyone kind of keeping to themselves in, in your experience? Yeah, I got to say, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones uh, being my age and being able to be on the tour. It's really, I think it's incredible. I'm extremely grateful and extremely happy that uh yeah i am over there and when it comes to coaches i mean i have a couple of um of coaches that i'm close with in terms of you know we like to talk about tennis and ask ourselves for advice sort of stuff like that i think it's pretty open and i think that also changed from when i came on the tour but that could be also that nobody really knew me you know at the beginning uh right now you know i'm around already for two years so you know you always see pretty much the same faces and yeah, there are a couple of guys that are, you know, I think really, really cool. I've been even in touch with some, well, pretty good and successful coaches, and they are very happy to help and talk with me about tennis, which again, you know, I'm I'm extremely grateful for because I feel like if I can learn from 
well, the best coaches out there that, that you know, already um, achieved the, the things that I want to achieve in my coaching career. That's, well, there, there are no better teachers than that, no better mentors than, than those. Um, yeah, for me, it's getting, it's getting better definitely than it was at the beginning. And, you know, there are also a couple of younger coaches as well. And it's nice to see those faces kind of, you know, changing and, and rotating. But, okay, sometimes coaches switch players or players switch coaches, whichever way you want to put it. But uh, it's pretty much the same people that stick around all the time. So, yeah, I think you create, you know, a little bit of uh, friendships over there. Yeah. Are these people you've been staying in touch with at all? I mean, in terms of uh, in this last, you know, couple months since the tour has stopped, are you hearing from other coaches what they're doing with their with their players, what they're doing in terms of, you know, payment or tr- looking ahead to the future or discussing when you can best guess the tour will come back or what is what are, what are your sort of networks, whether it's with other players that you still know or with coaches or whoever else, what are they, how's the communication level among pe- people who you knew from tour uh, right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, with the coaches, if, honestly, I'm not, not talking so much about, of course, every time we get some news from WTA, you know, we discuss, discuss it briefly and, and think like, okay, is this realistic or is it not realistic? But all the other times we just talk about tennis because again, now, you know, now it's the time, like everybody has the time. Um, and there's so much you can do. So I'm using this opportunity and just calling up all the people that, uh, I admire and, and I want to learn from, and I'm very lucky that they want to share their knowledge and experience with me. And we mostly talk about other things, not, not so much about what's happening anymore, because, you know, it's not new anymore. Like we are in this situation already for a couple of weeks. It's what it is. We're just, yeah, not much is really changing. And the WTA and the ATP, they are working on, uh, well, getting us out of this and, and, you know, running tournaments hopefully still this year and and they are working on how it's going to look how it can look working on different calendars different schedules and yeah we just we really cannot do anything about it anymore just gotta wait for for the news i'm curious did you happen to see uh the comments that were made by dominic team earlier this month that got some attention i'm curious i'm curious as a as a player and i I can say briefly i mean briefly team was talking about how he didn't think there was necessarily um, an obligation for higher ranked players to support players further down the ranks. And I'm curious, as a player yourself who played on tour for years and did not—I don't believe you broke top hundred. I think so. What what was what was your reaction to hearing the, reading those comments from uh, from a top player like that? Well, you know, or as a coach, or whatever perspective you come to it with. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know he has the right to his own opinion, and I, I don't think that there's a lot of like sort of yeah, not not such good words being thrown at uh, at team because of that. And I think that well, it's, it's pretty actually okay that he said what he thinks. You know, that's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. I, I I respect it. I think that it's great. He says what he thinks. He's entitled to his own opinion, and if he thinks that way, then yeah, it's it's his choice. But uh, if if it was me. I can only say that, you know, I wouldn't mind it because uh, considering the amounts that they were proposing over there, I think they were really, really tiny. I mean, it wouldn't make any difference to me if I had that money, if I was earning that money, if I was number, you know, five or four or whatever in the world. Um, and I would be very happy to contribute to tennis because after all, being a top player, I would feel responsible for for the sport, you know. And, and, and at the end of the day, you know, 
when when you are a top player, you also had to break through those rankings, so you know the reality and what's happening there. And yes, of course, there are a lot of players over there that just play and don't really put their all into it. But at the same time, it's like this in in every single other department. You know, in every company, if we if we go to business anywhere, there are people like that. But that doesn't mean that we should generalize because there are also, you know, probably more more players that are that this is their lifelong dream to become, you know, top 100, to become top 50. And they are doing everything they can in their power to, to achieve that. And I think that if I, was, if I was in his place, I would be very happy to, you know, support them and give them the chance to actually keep on dreaming because that's what it is right now. You know, uh, so many of them are in a very hard situation. And uh, I mean, I cannot imagine... I mean, I can only imagine what what they are thinking and and how they are dealing with all that. You know, um, the question whether to practice or not to practice is in their case whether I can practice because I can spend some money on playing and practicing right now, or shall I save it because the tournaments might not happen anytime soon? You know, mm-hmm. um, these are well tough again tough questions for them to to figure out and. If I, I think if I was a top player, I, I definitely wouldn't mind supporting them because, yeah, that's that's again my opinion. But I think that uh, everyone can, everyone thinks what they think, and and I think it's great that he said what he thinks and how he sees it. It's you know it's okay. At the end of the day, it's, it's just an opinion. That's what it is. Yeah, no, I'm I'm never mad at players being maybe especially as a writer has to tell stories and tries to in some grand sense like seek the truth in the sport to sound pretentious like i've never you know upset when a player reveals their opinion that more than they maybe should in terms of politeness mm-hmm. yeah you know, i think that i think that it, com- it comes off harsh but if that is how he feels and that is his clear that's his opinion on work ethic or things like that or, or what he thinks you know causes results or success in the sport then fair enough it's in, then it's and it's informative and useful to sort of know his his worldview on that and, and at the same time i do understand how it comes off as to all the lower rank players making it sound like he's calling them lazy yeah. or that he's saying that you know they're they just don't work hard enough and they don't deserve support because they're parasites or something uh and so i i understand that uh that reaction. I'm, I'm curious, just just from your time being in juniors and seeing, you know, which players were able to make their juniors into big successful pro careers and which ones had sort of medium successful careers or less success. Is there one thing that you think def- determines, or one like most important that determines whether or not a player will be able to achieve his or her goals on tour? Like in the end, is, is there something that it always comes down to more often than not, or is it a lot too many different things to to count that determine? success or lack of success i don't i don't think that there is like one golden rule that will you know say that somebody's gonna make it or not i think a lot of it comes down to timing because <laughs> you you've got to have good timing you know sometimes for example and and with a lot of things with the good and the bad things you know you can have good coaches throughout your career bad coaches but you can also have very bad timing when it comes to injuries let's say you know um so no, I don't think there's one thing that that defines it really. Uh, I think it would be impossible to say. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, things like having a good work ethic, working hard, having the right people around you, good timing, taking care of your body, 
and of course, ideally having financial resources to do all that uh, are are pretty much like the basics to to give yourself a chance even to make it, you know, to 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 get a chance and then and and then it really is a grind, you know, that's what it is. Yeah, that if I think that uh, if there was a formula for success, I'm sure that either the USTA, the French Federation, the LTA, <laughs> or tennis Australia, or tennis Australia would have figured it out by now. But they well, have not. I, I I just I just mean like more like even just like one determining personality trait or something. That, not something that's you know you can put everyone on the path that everyone will succeed, but something if it does come down to a player's personal work ethic or their mental strength or their technique or you know, what kind of background they come from or something like that. If there is some, you know, if there was some through line that you see as, as determinative. And, and I, I didn't expect there to be a clean answer mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, but yeah, I was, just, I was just thinking in terms of, in terms of how, people, how lower rank players are reacting to team and like what they see as their own uh, challenges that maybe he, they think that he doesn't appreciate those challenges, I guess. Yeah, you know, again, everybody's different, and and I think that there is, you know, you see people with that are completely different as as like human beings, you know, as as to their personality, and they are successful on the tennis court. You see people that are a bit more talented, um, and let's say lazier, kind of air quotes, lazier, sure, yeah. um, and and still being successful, you know. Then you see players that are really hard workers and they really try and they really push so hard and somehow they just cannot get the breakthrough. So it's, there are so many things that, that, that come to it. I think that it's really impossible to say, but I would say that timing, that's really, <laughs> but, but you know, timing is everything in tennis or in life. I mean, you're, you're, you're half a second late, you're, you hit the ball wide, right? Uh, or you hit the ball long or in the net. I mean, yeah, timing timing is everything. Definitely. I'm I'm curious, like you were mentioning before uh, about, uh, you know, not you're not sitting at home twiddling your thumbs. It sounds like your days are pretty full and, and you've been occupying yourself with with projects and things like that. So so what has been been keeping you uh, keeping you busy uh, and allowing you to continue to kind of scratch that itch that that is your passion for for helping people for learning and and all that stuff Mm -hmm. yeah the first thing uh okay one of the things i don't want to say yet because i don't want to kind of spoil it for myself it's still like a a longer exciting it's going to take a bit longer so i don't want to say that out just yet but second thing that actually is coming out tomorrow i'm starting my own podcast Yes. Oh, nice. Amazing. Sorry, guys. Competition. (laughs) (laughs) So that's scratching your competitive itch. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There you go. You see, we're producing all the same emotions on the tennis court. Here we go. (laughs) No, but they're they're actually in Polish because, you know, when I came here, I realized that there is actually no no valuable content in Polish when it comes to tennis. And um, the environment is not as greatest in in tennis at least here as i would like it to be so i thought okay what can i do to make it a bit better and i figured well you know what i know a lot of people here in poland uh, that are in tennis maybe i should just drive around and have some conversations you know and just record them and uh, that's what i did so tomorrow uh yeah it's the premiere of my first uh, podcast amazing uh, with one of an ex with an ex player she's a commentator and a coach right now and uh, every, I guess, two weeks, more podcasts are going to, to come along. And it's great because, you know, I'm also learning so much from them. It's it's really crazy. And since I've been doing everything myself from, you know, doing the podcasts and then editing, which, by the way, is 
it's really nasty. And then third of all, <laughs> we both know. You know, guys. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It took me twelve hours to edit my first podcast. Twelve hours yeah. to do one. I was really like, are you kidding me? And I had no idea what program I should use. All that, you know, it was all like trial and error. I think I downloaded probably like seven of them, and then <laughs> I managed to finally to, to finally work with one. And um, but yeah, all that, you know, it was very time consuming. And then I also got to give you my respect because I thought like, okay, you know, when you're a journalist, you just ask the questions how hard can it be but damn it can be pretty hard so <laughs> you know I had my script and and I started with something and of course the, the like nervousness you know you can hear it in the voice I speak on the podcast and and then suddenly the answer goes somewhere else so I cannot really ask the second question because it's about something else so then I was just like wow I cannot really follow the script anymore you know I just gotta roll along with whatever's happening um, so yeah, you know, also improving my skills, these kinds of skills, uh, which is new. I mean, who knows, maybe you guys are going to hire me one day when I don't have a job on the tour or something. You we never were going to ask you, know, you for the job, but that's okay. That's, we'll figure it out. Ah, okay. Just, just making a name for myself already, you know, just throwing it out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, this is one thing. And I think that's really cool. It, uh, I mean, I don't know, people are going to, are going to decide that obviously, but I am also learning a lot from this podcast, talking with those people. Uh, we are talking about really good subjects and the conversations are really easy going, you know, they flow from one thing to another. And uh, I think it's good, you know, you get two people that know something about tennis. I don't know if you can say a lot, but we know at least a little bit. So we, we talk about it and then everybody else can hear it. I think that can be very valuable here in Poland for the, for the tennis community. And then obviously the second project, which is a bit bigger, but I cannot really say it yet. So I'm sorry, guys. That, that's it. That's but okay. that's like, that's that consumes my days completely. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, Barbara Stritseva also just started her podcast uh, oh, in cool. Czech. Yeah. And uh, I think Ben and I get a little bit of of, of credit for, for nudging her along uh, in January. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and it, it's it's a very similar. And I think that's why, you know, probably like, Ben and I started a podcast or a lot of people. It's just like, we're just having conversations that we would have anyway and that we want to have yeah. anyway. Uh, and we just hit record, you know, and yeah. maybe, and hope other people might find it as entertaining as we do. And that's, you know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. And it's a good, audio is a good format. I think you'll enjoy yeah. it. You'll, you'll, you'll take to it very quickly. Well, I'm, I'm doing it also with video, you know, so it's, ah, like, okay. it's going to be on YouTube and then, you know, Awkward all stuff. these other audio platforms, but Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully it goes as well as I hope it will. But anyway, you know, it doesn't even matter because, like I said, I'm learning a lot from those things as well, uh, talking with the people. And um, to me, if, you know, one or two people find it valuable, that's that's already like, OK, great. You know, I, I'm, I'm very happy about it. Yeah. Well, we have found we are the one or two people who have already found you very valuable here in this moment, me and Courtney. So thank you very much, Sandra, for being on the podcast with us and good luck with your own look forward to I, I can't I will I cannot pretend even remotely that my Polish is good enough to listen to your show but I hope that you have all the success in the world with it I'll say that well thank you thank you and you know what uh, I gotta tell you next time when you call me for a podcast please warn me that there are going to be some tough questions 
<laughs> you ben, ben, guys. ben likes to fire the, the fastballs. <laughs> no, I liked it. I really liked it. I was joking, of course. No, you can call me okay. anytime and don't warn me at all. Just, just Perfect. make me like get me by surprise and yeah. But let's do this. <laughs> when you when you least expect it we'll be there. Thank you. Sandra. Exactly, yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So thank you very much to Sandra for being on the show and best of luck to her with her new podcast, which has had three episodes go up since we recorded this, uh, our chat with her about a month ago. Uh, some interviews with some Polish tennis folks. If you speak Polish, they are all available on YouTube and other platforms, and I'm sure you will enjoy them. So thanks to her again for coming on. And thanks to you guys for listening. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. We are also contactable by email no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And thank you as always to our Patreon backers who have supported the show so much during this year, during these fairly lean times for us. Really, really do appreciate it. Our new backer to give a shout out to since our last episode, uh, Julie Westfall. Thank you to Julie. And as every episode, give our thanks to our slam champ level backers who are Jonathan Weinbaum, Liz Kennel, Susanna W., Mary Carrillo, Betty, and Schwong Nguyen. And also to our goat backer, J-O-D. And we've gotten this question a couple times from people, including recently. So I want to say again on here, if you want to support NCR on Patreon, but do not want your name said on the podcast for whatever reason, that's absolutely fine. Just let us know. We we have several silent partner patrons on here as well, who we also appreciate just as much as the ones we give uh, the shout outs to. So if that is a concern of yours for whatever reason, that is something we can obviously make happen for you. Your secret will be safe with us. See you guys sometime down the road. Bye-bye.